I'm going to take just a few moments in my introduction to kind of preach very quickly the direction I thought I was going to go in. And then I want to take you in the direction the Lord led me. First off, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to do this very quickly. I'm not going to take a lot of time. But I want to show you a principle in the Word of God. And then I believe this principle will play out as we get through the rest of our sermon. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Uh, for those of you that were here on Sunday morning, and you heard me preach about the danger of the dearth. And uh, I appreciate the response to that word that when God gave it. Um, I've learned something. You ready? I, I, I've got part two. This is not my sermon, but you ready for part two? I told you about all the dangers of the dearth, all the things those bees go in. This afternoon after I worked here, before I went home, I stopped by my beehive. I needed to, to put something in it, and I opened my beehive up, and there were three bees in my beehive. They had absconded. It's a term where sometimes they just don't like what's going on, and they leave. And I don't know where my bees are. So I have an empty hive right now. And uh, so sometimes, if I ever preach that message again, I'm going to add a part to that. And sometimes bees, when they're in the dearth and things aren't coming in and things aren't flowing, they get this urge to just leave. And uh, they think that there's another beekeeper out there that's going to be better than me. I was a good beekeeper. I loved my bees. I sung to them. I played in bluegrass when I worked on the hive and everything. And they still left. Some of you think that's why they left, but I don't believe that. So I'm going to get more bees at some point. It may be next, so I, I may not have any bee sermons until uh, I get some more bees. But I learned something new, and they all left, and, and uh, I didn't even get any honey. They were pretty, pretty mean. Uh, but anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to just read part of these verses to, to show you a point. Uh, it says, in the, in the latter half of that verse, it says that the Lord comes who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart and then each one will receive his commendation from God. I'm reading in the English Standard Version. Did you catch that? That when the Lord comes, when the Lord judges, the Lord is able to judge the hidden parts. Let, let's continue that. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse uh, 4. Now, I, I'm, I'm taking this a little bit out of context uh, with it. This uh, chapter 3 of, of 1 Peter deals first off with, with wives and behavior of, of ladies, but I do think that we have to be very careful that we first see it that way, but we also have to understand that it doesn't just apply to our ladies. But watch what he says. It says in, 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 in verse 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Again, not, not wanting to dwell on that verse or spend time. I just want to show you that that phrase, the hidden part. God is very concerned and God is very, you know, he, he, he likes to know what's happening when no one else sees. And then I'd like to bring your attention to the book of Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 4. 
Hebrews chapter 4, looking at verse 12, you hear me quote this so often. And again, I'm, I'm in the English Standard Version, so it's a little different from the King James. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I've heard it said all my life, and, and there's different ways. I, I can go about three different ways that I've heard it said, but people have talked about character or integrity. Integrity or character is who you are when nobody else is looking. Have you ever heard that, that phrase? That we cannot, uh, uh, I, I may can fool you, I may can put on a facade, but just because I can act the part doesn't mean I have character, or doesn't mean uh, I'm walking the walk. There is a a hidden part. And God is concerned about the hidden parts of our life. And I was going to take some time uh, tonight and I was going to preach on kind of those hidden parts and how much God wants to get in there. But in doing so, I it, it, it would be very easy for me to, to take in where I went with Psalms chapter 51 where it says, Thou desirest truth. In the inward parts and in the hidden parts, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. And I got caught up in Psalms. Psalms is just full of, of uh, truths. In fact, if you read a lot of Jesus' words, you find that he quotes extensively from the Psalms. And so I want to take you on a journey. I want to take you on a journey to 2 Samuel. And uh, if you'll begin to turn there, I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I think it's important for you to see it. Uh, in your in your Bible, and and then we'll go from there. In Second Samuel chapter eleven and and into chapter twelve, a story begins to envelop and, and, and or rather develop that is is we all know it, but sometimes we need to take a closer look. The Bible tells us it's in the spring of the year. The time in which kings go out to battle. Now here, here's what that means, okay. Uh, in that time frame, they didn't have all of the luxuries that you and I have. And so if there was a war going on, it just seems like when, when winter came, it was sort of a, a truce that would happen. Nobody wanted to fight. In the winter time, and so all of those skirmishes and all of those battles and 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 going back and forth trying to capture or, or conquer kingdoms, it just had a natural ebb whenever the weather turned bad. But just as everything else, when spring comes, you begin to shake yourself out of the left uh, the lethargic nature of being cooped up for the winter. And it was about that time that an old king would kind of get up and start feeling some, some desire to hold a sword and, and somehow along with the bees coming out and the birds singing and the flowers blooming, kings went to war. For whatever reason, David did not go. The Bible says that David sent Joab, his general, the servants and all of Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah but David remained at Jerusalem. I've preached messages. I've heard other people preach uh, the dangers of when you should be doing something and you're not. The Bible, or, or well, let me let me back up. The Bible doesn't say that. There's a lot of things we say the Bible says that it doesn't. But how many of you've ever heard this? An idle mind is the devil's playground. 
doesn't say that exactly in the Word of God, but there's principles throughout the Word of God that indicate that's true. And David fell prey to this. There, late one afternoon, David is just kind of taking it easy. He knows his men are out fighting. He knows that his men are camped out, and they don't have the luxuries that he does. And, and anyway, he's just kind of he, on his couch taking a siesta, and, and his house and his palace was probably the highest around. And, and, and he stretches after waking up of that nap, and he goes and he's walking along his roof, and there he can see down upon all of Jerusalem And upon a house, probably semi-close, he finds a woman. She's bathing. She's on that. The Bible indicates that she's beautiful. And David crosses a line. He should have been out fighting. He should have been out doing, if you will, the work that he was called to do. But instead, David looks upon that lady. He lusts upon that lady. And he dwells on what he sees. I'd like to just remind you, the Bible says that he that, that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. If you would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you would find a list of David's mighty men. These were men that were close to David. These were men that had performed great feats with David. These are, are not just randomly selected men. These are men that are close to him. Most likely most of them had walked with David in the wilderness running from Saul before David had actually been crowned king. They had been with David in tight places. They had been with David when, when Saul was trying to kill him. They were close and it was one of those mighty men's wife that David sees. Thereupon that he calls and he says to to his messengers, he says, I want you to go find that woman. And and he knew who she was. I I want you to bring her into me. Now our kids are downstairs and and, and I'm trusting y'all to be mature. The Bible says that, that she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. Back in the Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, back in those, you would find that there was a commandment of God that during that time of month that a lady was to spend seven days after that. In fact, it was very clear, and this comes to play later, it was very clear that nothing was to happen during that time. But David brings Bathsheba in, and they, an affair begins to be kindled. And she goes back to her house and David thinks that he got away with it. And as she goes to her house, I can just think that David in his own arrogance, and as we go through the story, you will see the arrogance of David. He probably thought he got away with it. Uriah's gone. The only one who has to know is the messenger I sent. And I think that messenger is scared of me and he won't say anything. And then... Knock on David's door. David, I'm expecting. And now David realizes I'm in a quandary because it doesn't take long for people to do the math and realize that Uriah wasn't home. And and so then they're going to try to figure out, well, what happened? Where did Bathsheba go wrong? And I know it will come to me. And so David, he, he sends word to Joab, his general. He says, I want you to send home Uriah the Hittite. 
Uriah obeys the king's command. He comes home. There's a handshake. How you doing, David, my friend? How are you doing, Uriah? And, and David is guarding a horrid secret. David asks how Joab was doing, how the people are going, how the war is going. And then David says, Uriah, you've done a great thing. Why don't you go home? Why don't you take a bath? Why don't you put your feet up? Why don't you rest for a while? David had an ulterior motive. David was hoping Joab or, or uh, Uriah would go home and some sparks would get kindled and then it would cover up the affair and what was happening. David awakes the next day and he walks out of his house and he trips over a man sleeping on his porch. It was Uriah. What are you doing, Uriah? And Uriah says, well, well, well. I, there, there's no way I can go home to the comfort of my home when my men are out there sleeping on the ground and, and some of them don't even have tents and it's been raining and it's muddy and they don't, they're, you know, they're eating uh, MREs and they don't have all this. I just didn't feel right. I don't want my men to think I've just left and I'm trying to take it easy. It, I, that's not what a leader does. David is kind of upset. David can't explain what's going on. He's trying to hide what would happen. So David thought and connived and premeditated and and, and got a banquet going on and, and put all that nice food there. And the Bible says that he got Uriah drunk. Thinking that maybe that would jump start something. Uriah still doesn't go home. Even in an in a intoxicated state, Uriah had, had more uh, uh, integrity than a king. So in the morning, David pins a letter to Joab, puts it in the envelope, seals it with the king's seal. And in the letter he said, I want you to put Uriah at the front of the battlefield. And I want you to begin to find the place around that city where the fighting is most fierce. And when everything is committed and Uriah is at the front of that, I want you to get everybody to back up so that all of the arrows and spears and whatever... Uh, thing is happening is centered on that one man out there in the open and so it happened Job was besieging the city he got Uriah to the place where he knew that there was valiant men on that city wall where they were going to fight they fought with Joab they fought with the servants and then uh, uh, as, Uriah, as Joab is trying to pull people back Uriah fell wounded Dead. But one thing I, I had not, and, and I'm be honest, that one thing I had never noticed was in verse 16, or I'm sorry, verse 17. It says, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. In this stupid, blundering mistake, that you would never do if you were trying to fight. If you're going to fight and overtake a city, you don't fight the strongest place. You try to find the weakest area. But in doing so, it was not just Uriah that died. There were other soldiers that died. And Joab sends a messenger. The messenger goes and tells David and says, David, here's how the battle's going. We fought. 
And then I can only imagine that, that he began to list the men that died. This man died. This man died. And I, I kind of get this understanding as I read in the Bible that perhaps David kind of began to get mad. We shouldn't be of inflicting these losses. We shouldn't have these men dying. And then the messenger kind of sees David's face getting red. And he goes, and Uriah was killed. And suddenly David doesn't care anymore about the loss of his men. He's just happy Uriah's dead. He sends the messenger back. In fact, read it. I don't have time to go, but read it. It says, he, he, he's told the messenger, this is what I want you to tell Joab. I know Joab is a good general. He's going to feel the weight of the men that he lost in battle. But go tell Joab the sword is not very particular who it slays. The sword may get this one today, may get the other one uh, tomorrow it will be okay, just attack the city again and overthrow it. David became very nonchalant about the loss of life. David began to say, it's no matter, you're going to, you know, if you have a battle, you're going to lose some. It's collateral damage, perhaps, is what David was saying. Uriah's wife Bathsheba heard that her husband was dead. She mourns and when she mourns, when that time of mourning is over, there's a comforting knock on the door, a comforting hand. Hey Bathsheba, I'm so sorry your husband died. David makes her his wife. They bear a son. And David in his own mind thinks that he has hidden it away. In his own mind, David feels that I, I, I've done it. No one can, no one will see. There's only, uh, only Joab knows that I had Uriah killed and, and only the messenger knows that I brought Bathsheba to my house and I can control them and maybe David even said if I need to, I can take care of them too. But there's this last phrase in 2 Samuel 11 Verse 27, at the very end it says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I'm getting somewhere. David is sitting there. His son is, is it may even be born uh, or is, is nigh to be born. And Nathan the prophet comes and knocks on David's door and walks in. The prophet looks at David and said, you know, David, i got to tell you a dilemma I have. There was two men in the city, and one was rich and the other one poor. The rich man had flocks of sheep just galore, had everything he want. But this poor man only had one little sheep. In fact, that little sheep, that little ewe lamb, he would, he would hold it. It grew up with him, his children. They would feed it from the table. It would lay on his bosom when it slept. It was basically like a little dog, if you will. It was their pet. And... And, and this, this traveler came to the rich man and the rich man looked at his flocks and really didn't want to kill one of his own sheep and his thousands that he had and so he came and took the one lamb from that, that poor man and he prepared it for the traveler that had come and David begins to get mad, he's shaking and David says I'm going to tell you what needs to happen to that man I, I, let me tell you, as the Lord lives the one that did that deserves to die and he needs to give back, restore that lamb fourfold and, and, and I'm telling you I, I, tell me who it is Nathan and I will take care of it Nathan points his bony finger at David and says you 
are the man. All of a sudden, without with just that story, David realizes my sins have found me out. Nathan goes on to say that, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I appointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and even, even Saul's wives into your arms. I gave you both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if that wasn't enough, David, all you had to do was ask me and I would have given you anything you needed But you despised the word of the Lord. You did what was evil in his sight. You struck down Uriah with the sword. You took his wife to be your, 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 his wife to be your wife and had him killed. And so because of this, the sword shall never depart from your house. You've despised me. Thus saith the Lord, I will raise up evil against you out of your own sight. There's other prophetic words there that David what you thought you did in secret your own home will, will, will that those kinds of sins will get in, involved and intertwined in your children and in your family and, and sins that you did in secret your children will do openly and they will show you in fact not only that but your son this child that is going to be born is going to die and David begins to think. David sits there in, in my own imagination, if you will. Nathan leaves and David sits in the darkened confines of his palace. First Kings tells us that David did what pleased the Lord except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. It's almost as if David began to play through his life and realized, I've done everything right, but look what I've done. Somewhere in the darkness of that home, David begins to pen Psalms 51. And if you'll give me a moment, I want to go through that psalm and I want to show you what it takes If you've got hidden things, maybe no one else knows about it. Maybe no one else has a clue. But this is how you and God get right. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to my loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. One commentator says, as dirt is to the body, so is sin to the inner person. David was sitting there and that condemnation and that guilt began to overwhelm him. No one knew about it. It was really only three that knew, and I don't even know how much Bathsheba knew. Obviously, the affair was, was, was both of their faults, so to speak, but maybe she still thought Uriah had died A natural death, so to speak. But in committing those sins, there was a line that David had crossed. The Bible uses the word transgression. And that means you've crossed a line. You've you it's hard to get back. He had he had yielded 
to that twisted nature of humanity that exists in us since the dawn of time. And, and that lust, the Bible says, and when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. He, he sees that. He had rebelled against God. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to take you to a couple places very quickly. First off, I want you to go to Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. I want you to see this the way I see it. Leviticus 20 chapter 10. Again, reading from the English Standard Version. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall, per, shall surely be put to death. And David sits there, and, and please, tonight, don't, the, the, the sins that are being committed here is not the focus of this message. Because there are other sins that I could have inserted in here. That would be just as vile. And, and, and so this is not about the sin of adultery per se. This is not about the sin of murder. I don't think anybody here has murdered anybody. So there's no ulterior motive that I'm trying to preach to that one person sitting in the midst that you've murdered somebody. If you have, just don't tell me about it. It'll make me feel a whole lot better. So it's not about these two sins. It's about the process of sins that are in our, part, our, our, our souls hidden. But the Bible says that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulterer shall, per, shall surely be put to death. And, and again, in my imagination, in the way that I see this story play out, I see David sitting there going, i got to die. I've sinned and come short of the glory of God. I know what God's word says. In fact, I have presided over other stonings and other places where the adulterer and the adulteress had died and, and, and no one knows what I've done, but I deserve that. Strike one. Why don't you uh, look at Numbers chapter 35 with me. Numbers chapter 35 gives us another commandment. Numbers chapter 35 and verse 31. Moreover, or, or I'm sorry, let's start at verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the, wit, on, on the evidence of witnesses. No person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. He shall be put to death. David sits there. And maybe David goes... I murdered. And then as people are prone to do, we start going, oh, whew, only one person knows I had him murdered. That's, that's Joab. I can't be put to death on one witness, so I guess I did it okay. And he begins to, to try to, uh, you know, wrestle through that. But in the back of his mind, he realizes I should die because I murdered. That's strike two. David right now, according to civil law, David right now had two death sentences. One for the adultery, one for the murder. Two strikes. But also, 
in Leviticus chapter 11 and Leviticus chapter 13 was the commandment that you were not to touch anything unclean and that refers to the uncleanliness those seven days of purification after that woman's time and, and David had done that as well and now David says strike three I've sinned I've sinned and David realizes I've sinned against Bathsheba I, I, I did this against Uriah but deep down in his heart he says, I acknowledge my transgressions. With shaking hands, David begins to recount the things. And, and, and he looks at the Lord and he says, God, no more can I say I've hidden this. No one else knows about it. But you have that ability to see in the hidden secret parts. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. As it has in my life and it has in your life. You have those moments where your transgressions play out like a movie in front of your eyes daily. And, and no one knows about it. But that sin, that guilt, that shame begins to eat at you. And you don't know what to do. And, and finally David says, even though he knows he trans, uh, transgressed against Bathsheba. He transgressed against Uriah. But he realizes that more than anything he broke the law of God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. David knew good well because he was a king. David knew that the power of a king would lie in how that king dispensed judgment. Were they a just king? Or did they swing the balances when it helped them out? And so David realizes that his, his stature, his being king, means nothing to the kingdom of God. The fact that he wore the golden crown on his head did not, it didn't make him any better than anybody else. He says, cleanse me. He goes, I was shapen in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Now that just right there was him acknowledging that he was born in sin. That, that he's a sinner from birth. But he didn't just stop there. He said, but I know you desire truth in the inward parts. I know that it's in the hidden part. You shall make me to know wisdom. And David thought he could have perhaps kept his sin hidden. Uriah had died and David's tracks were covered. But God could see where man could not. Just ask Adam, ask Eve, ask Jonah. And so David says, purge me with hyssop, that I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be white as snow. Those first seven verses of Psalms 51, which is just an incredible repentant prayer. Those first seven verses, if you wanted to sum them up, and one commentary breaks this uh, uh this chapter in this way, the first seven verses, David says, cleanse me. David had sinned. David knew the truth of God's word. David, even other places and other psalms that David had written before and after this event, David would talk about, I love the word. It's a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. David had penned psalms like, I delight in the law. I delight in the word. And here, this very word that David loved is now condemning him 
He knows it. He had lied to himself. He had lied to the people. He had lied to God. In fact, there was some that said that maybe for over a year he had been covering up the tracks and covering up the sins. And, but God had pulled back the curtain and was there. But David understood something. David realized that his sin needed more than just a bath. And so David begins to stop for a moment and he begins to pin this. Make me to hear joy and gladness. That the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't throw me away. Cast me not from thy presence, O God. Renew a right spirit I'm sorry, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Those sins of David had affected his entire being. You will find here places where he talks about in, in verse 3 that my, the sin affected my eyes. In verse 6, my mind. In, in verse 8 and other places, he, he talks about it's affected my ears and my bones. In verse 10, my heart and my spirit. Verse 14, my hands. Verse 13 through 15, he says, my lips. That's the cost of committing sin. It affects everything. David wanted the joy of the Lord in him. Uh, another kind of phrase that David liked to use was that the face of the Lord would smile upon him. It, it, was, it was used often. It was, it was like saying, Lord, I want you to look down on me with joy and gladness. I want you to look at me with a deep uh, joy. I, I want you to love me. I need you. David began to think about this for a moment. And David realized in his life and in his sin, David realized that it was not enough for him just to get a bath, so to speak. Now we're in the Old Testament, by the way. We, we understand that. But I think David saw, if you will, prophetically past the Old Testament. Maybe David had heard some of these prophets speak. and David realized that even though right now you could just go get a, 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 a sacrifice, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself for a moment. David could have gone out to his flocks that he had. He could have gotten anything he wanted. He could, in fact, there's other places in the Bible where David, uh, incredible sacrifices that David made. But he realized that wasn't going to be enough. David said, I need you to restore me. David said, God, it's, it's not enough for you just to kind of Scratch it out, Lord. I, I've, I've sinned. I'm a broken man. I need restoration. Change me. It's not enough for you and I to just confess our sin. It's not enough 
just to say, Lord, cleanse me. But inside of us, there must be this, this desire, Lord, renew us so that I don't do this again. And then, in verse 13, he changes. I want you to look. Now, first off, he said, cleanse me. The second part, he said, uh, renew me. And then the last part, he said, use me. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For you desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. You don't delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. He says, do good in thy pleasure and design. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings that they offer bullocks upon thy altar. David, there was a prophecy from Nathan earlier where David had heard God say, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to take your life. I'm going to take the life of your son. So David realizes that at least his physical life is going to be spared. David's not enough. It's not enough for David just to live, uh, you know, and know that I'm going to be okay and, and you know, hey, I, I kind of, I sinned and I got away with it. That wasn't David's mentality. David, deep down inside, said, Lord, I want to get back to that place where I could serve you. I want to get back to that place where I've been wanting to make some preparations for the building of this temple. I've been wanting to do things for you, Lord, and and, and I don't I don't want to, to to lose all of that, God. Here I am, and and you, I'm not dead. I'm I'm not going to go get stoned today. And 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 but but God, I, I need you to cleanse me. I need you to renew me. But more than that, Lord, I want to get back into your presence. I want to get back to the place where I can be used of you. Desirous not sacrifice, else would I give it. This was not David's throwing away of the sacrificial system there that Leviticus and all of that tells us. But this was David looking past the Old Testament law. This was David looking forward and realizing that that it, you, you couldn't just go get a, a lamb out of the, the flock and bring it to the Lord and kill that lamb and say everything's going to be okay with me if your own life wasn't repentant. It's very interesting and I saw a, a, a person speaking on this verse said that it's interesting that God made it very clear that he would not receive broken animals for sacrifice but he absolutely would receive a broken heart. It's the one broken thing that you can bring to God that God willingly accepts a broken heart, a contrite spirit. Oh God, he doesn't despise. David sat there in his, in his room, and I, I, maybe this didn't take place all at one time, but I kind of think it does. That's just how I like to see it. David says, Lord, you see the inward parts. David didn't have Hebrews. Hebrews hadn't been written yet. But I think David could have written Hebrews 14. Lord, it's like a, a sword that pierces me. 
It's like, it's like being thrown on an autopsy table and, and the scalpel of God begins to go down and it lays open and things that had never been seen suddenly comes to light. All it took was Nathan to just give some little story about a poor man and rich man and a, nowhere in it, at least before David realizes it was true, nowhere did, did Nathan get tell David everything that happened. Later he did. But all it took was Nathan in the using the voice of God, if you will. The, the unction of God. Nathan pointed his finger and said, David, you are the man. And the hidden part opens up. David says, Lord, cleanse me. Because you care about the hidden part. Renew me. Restore me. Don't just restore the outside. See, we like to restore the outside a lot. Because with, if we restore the outside, then a lot of questions stop getting asked. You can stop a lot of people if you look the part. You can stop a lot of questions and a lot of, God forbid, gossip. If you just kind of restore the outside. God's looking much deeper than that. God's looking for a repentant heart. Isaiah tells us he's looking for a spirit yielded to the Lord. God's looking for those that are willing to take a walk into the dark places. Into the hidden parts of the heart. And let God go through it. And if you'll pray that prayer, not in some uh, mantra. You can't pray the same prayer that someone else prayed and just say the right words and it's kind of like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and it does a lot of incredible things. That's not how it works. you got to have the same spirit, the same repentance that David did. When David realizes that the hidden parts God sees. David said, create in me a clean heart. That's not just clean me up. Don't just, you know, kind of polish it and get the scratches out. It literally means I need a renewal. I need a restoration. Because God, I want my, I, I want to kind of get back. David saw something that not a lot of people in the Old Testament saw. David saw the grace of God. When David had three strikes and you should have been out. I will tell you right now, lest anyone try to, to, to twist my words or twist the words of the Bible. This was not God letting David go because God liked David. This was not David getting off scot-free because David was the king of Israel. David would have sat down in front of you with tears in his eyes and David would have talked about the high cost of the sin that he had committed. But David would have sat there still and said, I wish I'd have never sinned. I wish I could have saved my wife and my family and my sons and my daughters. And all you have to do is read your Bible. And, 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 first, and second Samuel and first and second, uh, Quran, or first and second Kings, they read in a chronological manner. 
Look at what happens after David's life. David's life became turned upside down. Incest became in his family. Rape came into his family. There were sons that usurped the throne. There were vile acts committed. David paid an incredible price for the consequence of his sin. David would look you in the eye and he would say, it wasn't worth it. David would with tears in his eyes tell you with voice trembling he would say I wish I'd have never sinned and it wasn't worth it for the consequences but there is one consequence that God graciously kept me from my soul is saved I'm speaking to someone right now You may have to go through the valleys. You may have to go through the consequence. But there is a God of grace that even when the hidden parts of your life hold a lot of skeletons in your closet, and even though you have three strikes against you and you ought to be thrown out, you ought to be given up on, you ought to have the death that comes with the wage of sin. There is a God. There is a God that says because of your loving kindness, Because of the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And God heard the voice and the cry of a repentant soul. God reached down. And God said, because you've given me access to the hidden parts, I can heal your soul. If David would not have given God access to the hidden parts, God still would have had access. God would have barged in, no search warrant needed. I'm firmly convinced David would have been hauled off to a killing ground. And there the stones would have been thrown, or the axe would have fallen in Bathsheba, and David would have died for their sin. But because David gave God access to the hidden parts God granted him grace and mercy And today I tell you the same thing you can fool man you can't fool God and it, there will be a point we read it in 1 Corinthians we read it other places there will be a point in which God is going to lay bare the hidden parts anyway and your sins are going to find you out and your sins are going to speak against you and your sins are going to Read the the consequence and judgment's going to fall and the wages of sin will be death. Tonight you can give God an opportunity even though He already knows. Say, God, here I am. Lord, I've sinned. I acknowledge my sin. My transgression is ever before me. I think there's some of us that need to take a moment right where you are. It can be just simply bowing your head. You can kneel. You can stand. You can come to a front. But I think there's a voice of God that's speaking to you right now. Because the hidden part matters. The hidden part is what counts. Would you talk to Him right now? Hallelujah. God, only you can speak to us. Only you can talk to us. Change me, Lord. Change me, Lord. Change.